Okay, so my dear friend was pregnant. Everybody was excited. But then the doctor said, something's wrong. They put her on bed rest. And for my friend, this was not easy. But she was going to do everything she could. They told her not to move. So she didn't move. But then she started having pain, started having these pains. And her water broke. Too early. Way too early. Months too early. But the baby had to come out. Premature. Mother and child were whisked to a neonatal intensive unit and only parents were allowed to visit. I was not a parent. But the daddy was on the other side of the world trying to find a plane and my friend said, I need someone here. So when the nurse asked me, are you the daddy? Are you the daddy? I told her, yeah, I'm the daddy. And the nurse, she told me to scrub my hands with soap and the special brush before she took me to the incubator. And she looked like a little baby bird hooked to tubes and wires and monitors so, so tiny. My friend, the child's mother, took my hand. I told her to go to sleep. Go on to sleep. Are you sure? Go to sleep. She finally left, and the nurses told me that what the baby... What a tiny baby under two pounds really needs is skin-on-skin contact. What can I do? They told me to strip. They set up a tent, an anti-contamination tent, and sent me wearing nothing but my boxer shorts inside. The monitors kept beeping and beeping, rhythmic. The nurse picked up this little baby and her little mouth opened The monitors went crazy, alarms, red flashing, shrill, loud. I have never been more scared. And she put that tiny baby on my chest and all those noisy monitors, all that crazy calamity. Calm down. Calm down to a heartbeat. Her heartbeat. Skin to skin. She felt so soft. She looked so beautiful. I thought I had lied when I told the nurses she was mine. I looked down and saw her and knew whatever the biology right then. For that moment, she was mine. And you know what? When I see her now, riding her bike with that big old horsey laugh, and I ask, who's your favorite? I don't care who she says. I don't care because I already know. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX to NPR, Close Knit. Stories about the ties that bind. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Today on the show, we're exploring those close-knit bonds between people, friends, family, and there is nothing. There is nothing like the bonds between two sisters. And now, it's all well and good. It's grand to say you love someone, but simply saying it, that wasn't enough for the Scott sisters. Hello, this is um, Gladys Scott. I am the uh, sister of Jamie Scott, which they call us the Scott sisters. My name is Jamie Scott, and I'm one of the Scott sisters. The Scott sisters have a powerful bond. It began when they were young. We've yeah. always been close. We have always been close, even as, as little girls. Sometimes, you know, people get jealous of our closeness. You One can't make it without the other. We, we just like being around each other. Gladys, the baby, was always protective of her big sister. At home, she would even offer to take Jamie's spankings. I ain't like to see Jamie get a whooping because she real sweet. I didn't let nobody mess with her, though. Each sister took turns standing up for the other. At home, on the playground, and as they grew older, in clubs and on the street. But one day in 1994, both sisters came under attack, and there wasn't a thing they could do to help each other out. 
Two men were robbed on the side of a dark Mississippi road at gunpoint by a group of teenagers. The teenagers, three boys, were apprehended and pled guilty. Then, they pointed the finger at Gladys and Jamie, saying the sisters helped to plan the robbery. No, no we did not plan the robbery. No. We knew nothing about the robbery. We have never been in trouble with the law, not even a speeding ticket. The men who pled guilty served two years in prison. Gladys and Jamie were each given double life sentences. I mean, I was just devastated. I was saying to myself, life? Life? Wasn't nobody hurt, wasn't nobody killed, wasn't nobody hospitalized or nothing. No, no gun, no nothing. And I was one of the ones that used to say, uh, people deserve to be in prison. They do the crime they need to do the time. I don't want to hear that no innocent people in prison until it happened to me. In prison, no one believed they were only convicted of robbery. No, they thought we was lying and playing. People that murder people, people that kill little children, they didn't have the time Gladys and I had. That was a hard pill to swallow. Prison officers separated Gladys and Jamie, placing them in different wings of the prison. They couldn't hurt us together, so they had to separate us. But you you had to be strong, because no matter where she was, I felt her in my gut. Like I told them, y'all can't break this love, no matter how far she away from me or whatever. You can't break this love. I knew when she was sad, so I would write letters, and I would give them to the girls to sneak over to her side. We'll, we'll tell, tell each other, other we, love. we love each other. As years dragged on in prison, Jamie's health began to fail. Her kidneys weakened, and guards continually rushed her to the prison hospital. When I come back from the hospital, I have letters on my bed from her saying, I just felt someone right with you. Then one day, about 14 years into their sentence, Jamie went into stage 5 kidney failure, and Gladys was suddenly faced with the possibility that she could lose her sister. I was so scared as I ever been in my life. She, she my everything, she my all. I couldn't see myself walking out that door without my sister. I couldn't see her going in a pine box out that door. Gladys knew that transplant was the only hope for Jamie. I said, we sisters for life. I said, we both gonna have one kidney together. You is not finna die in this place because if you go, I'm going. So she offered to donate one of her kidneys to Jamie. But a transplant is costly. But then we got word that they don't have the money to um, pay for a transplant. I believe wholeheartedly that I will die there. So Jamie decided to tell the whole world about their situation. I bought a typewriter in prison and I sat down and I typed this booklet. She gave the booklet to their mother, who mailed photocopies to everyone she knew along with local news stations, the ACLU, Oprah, Montel Williams, and pretty much anyone with a postal address. The response was overwhelming. It went like a wildfire. I couldn't believe it. Then the mail coming into the prison. We used to have so much mail, the mail room got tired of us. We had mail coming from Italy, Africa. Kids was writing us all over the world. I mean, oh, you, you just don't know the love. The NAACP took up the case, and in the streets of Jackson, Mississippi, people protested for the release of the Scott sisters by the hundreds. There was more than hundreds. The news said a couple of hundred, but there was over 3,000 people show up. We're here without fear. And we want our sisters free. And that's not the people, uh, that's not counting all the ones that call and email the governor's office. A local radio host counted down the days of their double life sentence. It's been 15 years, 128 days, since Gladys and Jamie Scott. We had uh, headphone radios. We, we listened to him every morning. 16 years and maybe the 17th Christmas behind bars for Jamie and Gladys. He started counting down. Every day he would get on the radio and play it's them. It's a long time coming. It's, that's the old that's, blues song. A change going to come. A change is going to come. As Jamie's condition worsened, Gladys's fears grew. Gladys insisted their lawyer tell the governor about her offer to donate a kidney. And then... I was reading some mail, and my roommate said, Gladys, 
you on TV. And it was saying that Governor Haley Barber had suspended our sentence. And everybody was around the table. They was just hollering, you going home? You going home? You coming home? You coming home? And I just started crying. And I had told one officer, please go over there and check on my sister. And since she ain't had no heart attack, tell her just, hold on, we going. I had just come from dialysis. And when I came back, all the inmates was in the doorway beating on the door on the glass. Jamie, you going home? You going home? And the officer seen me about to get weak. And she was like, y'all stop. Y'all going to make her fall out. And so they got me to my bed. It came on again. It, was, uh, it interrupted a news bulletin. I was just crying, and I was like, God, I thought this day would never come. The governor of Mississippi pardoned the Scott sisters on one condition. Gladys was ordered to donate her kidney to Jamie. It was criticized as unlawful and unethical to legally mandate the donation of a body part. But Gladys and Jamie didn't care. I thought that my kidney failure was going to be the death of me, but it turned around it was the reason I got released, me and my sister. They show you how... Sometimes God allowed things to happen, and we think it's for the bad, but sometimes it, it be for the good. You know, I always tell everybody a woman can't be broken. Maybe he let us go through them 16 years and 32 days to come out and tell a story to help other people. Thank you, thank you. Gladys and Jamie Scott for sharing your beautiful story with Snap Judgments and Assessment. The radio clip you just heard in that piece came from the Rip Daniels radio program It's a New Day and you know we're happy to report that the Scott sisters are closer than ever. Now we're going to take a short break and when Snap returns we're going to see if the father really is the father when Snap Judgment, the close-knit episode, continues. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the close-knit episode. We're digging into stories that explore those deep and lasting bonds we have with each other and how they came to be. You might think that you put a lot of effort into maintaining a relationship with your family, but you won't have any idea what effort means till you hear this next story. Now, some of the audio from this piece comes from the amazing documentary, Marathon Boy. Red sneakers hitting the dirt. Booty is sweating, but he's confident. His legs are steady, even though he's in the middle of his 13th mile. He finishes the half marathon with a great time. Two hours and four minutes. Budia is three years old. One day I'll run all the way to the Olympics. Which are big dreams for a little boy who just one year earlier was starving in the slums of India. Here's Gemma Otwal, the creator of Marathon Boy. She went to Budia's hometown in Bhuvaneshwar, India, to follow his tiny red sneakers. 
Sukanti Budia's mother led a desperate existence. It got to the point where she could not afford to look after him. Sukanti, in absolute desperation, sells Budia for the equivalent of $17, 800 rupees, to a passing salesman. At the age of two, Budia was a slave who was forced to beg for coins on this traveling peddler's behalf. Back home in Bhuvaneshwa, Baranchi Das was walking through the slum. He was a known philanthropist and a friend of Sukanti's. He inquired about where Budia was, and Sukanti admitted she'd sold him. Horrified, Baranchi spent five days tracking down the peddler. He gave the peddler back his 800 rupees and said, I want to take this boy and my charge. And from that day, he did. Baranchi owned a professional judo hall and orphanage where he educated and trained a number of slum children, giving them a better chance at life. Baranchi was a man who believed that there was greatness in everyone, including slum children. He trained India's top medal judo champions. Tomorrow, history will record that a Baranchi Das was once here who incessantly fought for the poor in sports. That's what I want. Baranchi adopted Budia and immediately took to the little boy. Baranchi's wife could see their close bond. He hasn't only mentally adopted Budia as his son, he probably loved Budia more than his biological son, Rohit. One day, Budia cussed at another orphan, so Baranchi punished him by making him run laps around the judo hall. I thought he would sooner or later stop. When I got back at 1 p.m., he was still running. I was stunned. And so Baranchi thought, this boy could be a long-distance runner. He started Budia on a strict training program with early morning runs. He would ride his bike next to Budia and shout encouragement at him. Budia genuinely appeared to enjoy running, and he genuinely appeared to have a special talent for running. I will run wherever Sir wants me to. He ran six half marathons at the age of three. At the age of four, Branchi stepped up the game and he was running full marathon distances. That's 26 miles. Branchi was very savvy. He was very media aware and he knew that if he got the people on board, he would be able to be en route to becoming India's greatest runner. So Baranchi started calling the press and arranging public appearances for Budia. He became famous all over talk shows and events. There were even pop songs written in his honor. The people adored him wherever he went. And there was talk that this boy would one day bring back laurels not only to Arisa State, but to the whole of India. Baranchi wanted Budia to make a world record that nobody would be able to beat. So he arranged for Budia to do a highly publicized 65-kilometer run. Budia was five years old at the time. 1,200 men ran behind him, and he was followed by media crews. And Budia was doing fine, it seemed, up until about the 60-kilometer point, which was astonishing. Budia's eyes seemed to lose focus, and he slowed down. He was given water and he was given orange quarters, but essentially he was just dehydrated. He begins to snake across the road in this serpentine movement. Essentially, this is a boy with a tiny frame. His head was much too heavy. He was looking up to the adults around him for someone to give him permission to stop the race. And nobody, it seemed, was looking and seeing his pain and anguish. He began to look exhausted. He was looking across to me and he had this tortured expression as if repeatedly being asked to thrust his hands into a sack of glass. But unfortunately, the race wasn't stopped. But against all odds, Budia did it. He finished the double marathon. He ran 42 miles in seven hours, and the crowds roared. But his run could not end just yet. Baranchi thought it would look magnificent if Budia ran to the stadium two miles away, where visiting dignitaries were waiting. But for Budia, it was finally too much. Budia's legs bless him, could not run any 
further. His entire body had packed up. He was about to fall to the ground, but Baranchi and some media persons ran over to him and propped him up, and he was taken to the side of the road. It was a pitiful sight. I thought that this boy might not make it. Nobody took Budia to the hospital. They took him to the stadium instead, despite the fact that he was barely conscious. The scenes at the stadium, they were just devastating scenes. He was mimicking water being put to his mouth. He wanted a bottle. And when he was given water, he drank it all so quickly that he instantly threw it all back up again. And he was repeatedly throwing up the water. The media were all thronging around him, taking photographs of him. There was camera flashes going off in his face. And you just saw this boy just by himself, desperately sad, I felt at the time, alone, and nobody was coming to help him. The media lauded Budia as a hero. He created a new world record to become the youngest marathon runner on the planet. So the fact that he had actually collapsed, that was all pretty much glossed over, and there was a party. And still, hours after his ordeal, Budia professed his love for the sport. I'm not tired, I'll run, and I'll run in the future too. You know for a fact that Budia is being fed lines of what to say to the media. It's a double-edged sword with Baranchi because, yes, it's undeniable that he was a loving father, but his love of these slum children was eclipsed by his dream of finding a sporting champion. Baranchi gave Budia a private school education, food to eat, training, and plenty of love. But for Budia, perhaps there was no such thing as love without a price. This is a boy who was sold twice before the age of two. And what's the impact of that? Is running Budia's way of showing gratitude to Baranchi, perhaps? You know, I want to please him because he's good to me. The first time I met my coach, I was a naked, hungry, and skinny kid. Then Sir took charge of my life by taking me to his home. Yep, all that went down, but that is not the end of the story, not even close. To see what happens between Budia and Baranchi, you've got to check out the documentary Marathon Boy. Go to snapjudgment.org to find out more. It is amazing. That piece was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. When I was in high school, it felt like those people were the people I would roll with until my dying day. And if you're in love in high school, that high school romance can taste like it'll last forever. Our next guest, he got a phone call that showed him how long forever really is. Sensitive listeners should know that this next story does contain some graphic imagery. I was a virgin for, like, ever. By the time I dragged myself to the end of my junior year, I was so ready to cast off the dead albatross of my virginity from around my neck and toss it to the first person who would catch it. And then I met Zooey. Zooey was a heavy metal chick who wore tight Wranglers and weather Judas Priest t-shirts. She rocked blue eyeshadow and feathered blonde hair. A tiny hurricane with a button nose and a smattering of freckles dusting her dimples like cinnamon. She drank. She smoked. She chewed tobacco. There was no way a streetwise tough girl like Zooey would allow her skin to be touched by some lowly nerd like me, who smelled ripe from too many hours piloting an Atari 2600. But I had one thing in my favor that spoke louder than my nerdiness, a little brown Nissan pickup. Oh yeah, I had wheels. And the thing I wanted most the moment I met Zooey was to get her inside my pickup. And somehow, some way, there she was sitting next to me with my gear shift between her knees and my hand on her thigh. We cruised around with Rock You Like a Hurricane cranking from an old boombox in the floorboard. We laughed all night long. 
Zooey and I spent a lot of time in my truck that summer, especially in the bed of that pickup. And then, my senior year started, Zooey and I saw each other less and less, and then that was it. And 24 years goes by. In that time, I go to college, I become a journalist, then I quit to become a vagabond poet. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I get this friend request on Facebook. It's Zooey. We chatted back and forth about our lives. She ended up raising four kids. She was now divorced and working in a doctor's office. Zooey said she'd always wondered about her first child. She had done the math and figured the father could have been the man she ended up marrying, or he could have been mine. He was 24 years old now, and I think there's no freaking way. There's no way this kid is mine. I want to tell her it wasn't me. How could it be? Wouldn't I feel it in my gut? Wouldn't she have told me back then? I asked for his birthday, then did the math myself, and landed at the end of the summer before my senior year in high school. Whoa. And then Zoe told me her son had three kids of his own. Whoa. A year later, I am sitting across the diner table from Zoe in our shared hometown where she has lived her whole life. After 20 minutes, the reminiscing slows to a pause. She makes a call on her cell phone and says, Hey, we're here at the coffee shop. You ready? She smiles and says, Well, want to meet him? I tell her that I do. I follow her in my car while listening to Led Zeppelin on the classic rock radio station, and she leads me to a small house with a clean yard and a big plum tree with purple leaves shading the walkway to the door. And then we walk inside. Now, I can't judge people harshly simply because they don't react to situations the same way I would. Everyone is different. Being told the man you've assumed was your father for 25 years might not be the sperm donor that led to your creation is a real mind blower. If I'd been told by my mother that some dude she dated briefly when she was in high school could be my biological father, I would probably want to meet him and find out who this guy is. And if I had told my mother to invite him over to the house to meet in person, I would probably, I don't know, put a shirt on, for instance. In fact, I would probably put pants on, too. I walk into the room, and the first thing I see is this bitter-faced 25-year-old lolling on the sofa, glaring into a plasma screen TV. His eyes don't so much as flinch my way. He has hazel eyes, like my dad. Hazel is what you get when blue eyes fall for brown eyes. Blue eyes like Zooey's and my grandma's. Brown eyes like mine and my grandpa's. I walk over to Zooey's son, reach out my hand and say, Hey man, how's it going? And he does not move. He makes no sound remotely resembling acknowledgement of my greeting. He just stares at the planet of the apes. So I say, Alrighty then. At that moment, I want to scream at him. Dude, what is wrong with you? I didn't force this meeting. I accepted your invitation. And now that I'm here, you're pretending I don't exist? However, I say none of these things. I just stand there, awkwardly, waiting for something to happen. I clear my throat and say, So? And Zooey's son shouts, Mom, give me your keys. He leaps from the couch and stomps past me and down a hallway, and you can hear him banging on a bedroom door with these big booming punches. A thin muffled voice answers, and he bellows, Yo, wake up! Where's my money? There's another muffled voice in answer, and he shouts, I want my money! Ain't my fault you smoked it all in one go! You've been sleeping all day, now get up and give me my money! He pounds back into the room, and he's got a shirt on now and some shorts. He crosses the room to his mother's purse on the dining room table, grabs the car keys, and storms toward the front door. I call after him and say, Look, man, I know this is a weird situation, but you invited me. That's why I'm here. I'm here to figure out what we should do next. He hardly hesitates in his race for the door. He yanks it open, then slams it shut behind him. A car engine's muffled roar disappears down the street. And then, it's just me and Zooey, standing in the middle of the otherwise empty room, me with my hands shoved into my pockets, her with arms folded across her chest. I finally sigh and say, Well, 
I give Zuya an awkward smile. Tell her it's okay. Tell her I'm here if he wants to contact me, but I tell her he has to be the one who makes the effort. As for me, I've done all I'm willing to do. She walks me to the driveway. We awkwardly hug again. She's still hugging me when I let go. She stands on the porch, squinting into the sun and hugging herself as I get into the car and drive very slowly away. Even though I could hardly remember the girl Zooey had once been, how different would her life have been had she told me back so many years ago that she was pregnant, that she was sure it was mine? How different would my life have been? I drive in silence down unfamiliar streets in my hometown. I pass the place where the branches had shielded Zooey and me in the back of my pickup during that summer lifetimes ago. The farmland had been paved over for years, a supermarket parking lot covering the dark earth where I had planted my virginity. I turn on the radio. Rock You Like a Hurricane is playing on the classic rock station. I clear my throat and begin to sing along. Big Papa E, that's his real name, Big Papa E. He's a poetry slam champion, a writer, a journalist, just released the whole wide world, a full-length book collecting rants, screeds, confessions. Find out more at brokenword.org. We'll have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Jamie DeWolf, sound designed by Renzo Gorio. Yo! When Snap Continues... We're going to plumb the depths a man will go through to provide his family the vegetarian fare they so rightly deserve. You need to hear this one in just a moment when Snap Judgment continues. Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the close-knit episode. We're digging into stories that explore those deep and lasting bonds we have with each other and how they came to be. Chamber Stevens had the perfect family growing up. The Brady Bunch, they lived down the street and they were jealous of him. And then one day, his perfect father was transformed into a foul figure. Growing up, my parents had an active social calendar. There was nothing they liked better than a Saturday night at Printer's Alley. A little less conversation, a little more action, please. My brother and I loved our parents' nights out. And most of all, we loved the next morning. My mama would tell us all the exciting news of last night's adventures, what the band played, how daddy danced so crazy. The last time my parents went to Printer's Alley, I was 13. When I got up the next morning, I felt there was something odd. I heard what sounded like my mother crying. Now, in our house, this was a rarity. My mother was a cross between Mary Poppins and Carol Burnett. 
Tears were not in her gene pool. I went upstairs. Mama, are you okay? She took one look at me and sobbed. Shut the door. Mama, did did something happen? If, If I tell you, you have to promise you won't say anything to your daddy. Okay. Well, last night we went to Printer's Alley like we always do. Me and your daddy danced a while and... Then the band stopped, and they had this magician put on a show. Ladies and gentlemen, the mysteries of the unknown. He did the usual stuff, cutting a woman in half, pouring milk into a hat. Your daddy didn't like him much. I told Austin to try to have a good time, and he promised me he would. So when the magician asked for a volunteer, your daddy jumped to his feet. Young sir, come up here, sir, you brave strapping soul. The magician sat your daddy down in a chair and made him look at the spinning wheel. He said he was hypnotizing the victim. After a couple minutes, he snapped his fingers. Your daddy slumped forward like he was asleep. The old man then told us he was going to turn his victim into a chicken. Every time he said, Pomegranate, bam, your daddy would be a chicken. Then he yelled, Pomegranate. Your daddy leapt out of that chair and started running around the stage. (laughs) I was laughing so hard, I almost wet my pantyhose. And the old man said, Pomegranate again, and your daddy stopped and fell to the floor. Audience went crazy. Pomegranate. And there was Austin flapping around again. He got all tangled up in the drum set. Pomegranate. And your daddy lays down again. The old man snaps his fingers and he woke up and everyone jumped to their feet and cheered. Your daddy waved to the crowd. We about closed that place down. Afterwards, your daddy and I were sitting in the car, fixing to leave. And he starts on how that magician wasn't any count. I told him I thought he was pretty funny. Your daddy looked at me so strange. When was he funny? Well, when he said pomegranate and you... And before I could finish the sentence, your daddy started to flail around the car. His arms swung around and hit me in the face. He was bouncing around like a chicken with his head cut off. I jumped out of that car and ran back to the club to find the old hypnotist. But the maitre d' said he had left after the show. I ran back to the car and your daddy was still flailing like all get out. I opened the door and screamed, pomegranate! And just like that, he stopped. He had laid on the front seat, breathing hard. Finally, he looks up at me and says, Well, are we going home or aren't we? All afternoon, my mom and I talked about what we should do. We decided to keep it a secret. Tell no one until we could find the old magician, which we never did. Though I did use pomegranate once to my advantage. I had been invited to my first boy-girl party, and I really wanted to go. I got cleaned up, and I was heading out... My daddy asked me to come into the bathroom. He was washing his hands, having worked on the speedboat all afternoon. Son, last week I told you to mow the yard, and you still haven't done it. So this partying is out until you learn to do your chores. I was furious. I argued with him. This just made him matter. Finally, out of frustration, I yelled out, Pomegranate! And slammed the bathroom door. Immediately, I heard my dad jumping around like he was on fire. I ran out of the house and down the street to the party. But after about an hour, my guilt got the best of me and I went on back home. The house was quiet. I leaned my ear to the bathroom door. Not a peep. Daddy? He didn't answer back. I tried to open the door, but it wouldn't budge. I leaned my weight into it and moved it about a foot until I could squeeze in. Floor was a mess. Covered in broken glass, toilet paper, shaving cream. Daddy was lying on the floor, breathing hard. There were drops of blood on the door. Daddy, are you okay? He didn't stir. His nose was swollen, and there was blood on it too. He must have tried to peck his way out. Pomegranate, I whispered. Still he didn't move. Pomegranate, Daddy. Pomegranate. I gently shook him. Oh, what happened? You fell down. Uh, Don't move till I pick up the glass. You don't want to cut yourself. Later, my mama came back home, and thank God she bought the story of my daddy's fall. And after a while, it seemed like I had dreamed the whole thing. Ten years later, my mama passed on. My dad remarried, and a decade later, he had a bad stroke. His speech became slurred. He had trouble walking. My stepmother asked me to come with her to meet with this specialist, an expert on the workings of the brain. We watched the doctor examine my dad. Austin, do you know what day it is? Uh, 
Not really. Do you know who the president is? Yeah, but I can't remember his name. Can you tell me how you feel? Daddy looked at the floor. His lips moved, but no words came out. After about a minute, he looked up and said in a very clear voice, Well, I can't beat Elvis in a push-up contest. My stepmother laughed nervously. The doctor shot me a worried glance. Austin, when was the last time you saw Elvis? My stepmother interrupted. No, Elvis and Austin were in the army together. Their platoons were right next to each other. Austin was the push-up champion in his platoon, and Elvis was a champion in his. So the guys made Austin challenge Elvis, and Elvis won. My dad smiled. The doctor laughed. How had I never heard that story? How many other great stories had my dad neglected to tell me about his life? Were they lost forever? Wiped out by the stroke? On the way home from the doctor, Daddy and I sat in the back seat. I tried asking him some questions about the army and Elvis, but he really couldn't answer. Nothing I said seemed to have any effect on him. Finally, I took his face in my hands, and I said, pomegranate. My dad looked at me for a second. Then he clucked like a chicken. Then he smiled. Give us a room with a view of the beautiful Rhine. Give us a room with a view of the beautiful Rhine. Give me a muddy old creek in Texas or any old time. I got those up to three for occupation GI Blues. From my GI head to the heels of and if I don't go stateside soon, I'm gonna blow my fuse. Besides being a storyteller, Chambers Stevens is an award-winning writer, director, acting coach in Los Angeles. You can learn more about Chambers at ChambersStevens.com. Chambers Peace was produced by Mark Ristich and Rita Daniels. Now, do you know how people get to be close? How they get to be tight? There's only one thing, one thing only can make it happen. Shared hardship. And you think you've got it hard? You think you might be allergic to gluten or peanuts or carbs? Well, you gotta cry to somebody else, someone more sympathetic, because that ain't nothing compared to how regular SNAP contributor Diane Lakshmi Narayanan grew up. We're gonna join her at the live Fireside Storytelling event in San Francisco. People ask me in California all the time, oh my gosh, wasn't that hard for you as an Indian growing up in Georgia? And we had three major issues. One, we were Hindu vegetarians. Second, we lived in the South, where a vegetarian meal was macaroni salad or potato salad. Something with mayonnaise, right? That was a vegetarian meal. And our third problem was that my dad uh, was um, frug... cheap. He's very cheap, very cheap. One time he drove from uh, Roswell, Georgia, where we lived, uh, to Birmingham, Alabama, which is 160 miles, because a can of paint was on sale. <laughs> so I was very surprised when one day he uh, offered to take me out for lunch. He said, let's go to Atlanta, Chinatown. And China implies there's something Chinese about it. <laughs> But uh, they could only find one Chinese merchant. So they had like a Japanese Christmas ornament store and a radio shack. <laughs> so we, we go to the Chinatown. And um, to our surprise, there's this sign at the food court that says, All Vegetarian Healthy Asian Food. 
and we're so excited. Uh, we walk up to the lady, and so she starts giving us this meal that's really, really good. All kinds of different vegetable dishes. None of it has mayonnaise in it. There's tofu. There's imitation meat. And uh, she starts telling us as we're eating that this Asian vegetarian restaurant is affiliated with a spiritual leader. <laughs> And if we like the food, there is more of this food at the holy house. And which I think is just her approximation for, you know, Buddhist temple. My dad seems to be excited and she says, "Oh, by the way, if you come, all of the food is free. We will be there." <laughs> We go home, and the next morning we have a very light breakfast, and we start driving to this place called Dahlonega, Georgia, because we can't go directly to the Holy House. We have to uh, stop at the Waffle House first, <laughs> and we go in her car to the Holy House. And around this time, I'm thinking, is eating vegetarian food so secretive? We have to do this elaborate underground railway vegetarian thing. Like, is vegan Harriet Tubman gonna come out? Be like, I am courageous. I am happy. You know, like whatever. So we go in the you know unmarked vehicle um, to the Holy House. And I notice we're driving into what looks like a subdivision, and I'm like, okay, maybe there's gonna be some temple spires and some like sculptures, and you know, I'll just you know keep waiting for the zoning to change. It doesn't. It's uh, not a Buddhist temple. And at this point, I hear my dad saying in Tamil, the language we speak, "idiyaro virpolerke," which means I think this is just some dude's house. <laughs> And my mom goes, "Adalam parvale anak pasikrde," which means I don't give a. Sh- I'm hungry. <laughs> we we knock on the door and they they open the door and there are all these like smiling, very well intentioned East Asian people with Southern accents and they lead us up to what they call their steeple, which is this their attic. Uh, and there are these two white guys, and I don't understand why they're there. Like they walked into Radio Shack and were kidnapped. Right? <laughs> and the leader says, "Welcome. I would like to teach you all a special mantra, which will save your life. And you can teach it to anyone you like, but not to people with bad karma, like the handicapped or the retarded." <gasps> yes, yes. So they teach us this chant. So you put your right hand over your left hand. You can't keep your eyes open because you'll be distracted by the sunlight, and you can't close them because the darkness will envelop you. So you have to keep your eyes between one quarter and three quarters open. And then, as you say the chant, which is "Utai Futmilet," you must keep your tongue at the roof of your mouth. So let's just say it together. And then they congratulate us for doing a good job. And then the spiritual leader says, "And now dinner is served." So she leads us down to the kitchen where I see the most amazing sight I have ever seen. Tofu stew and chawan mushi and sushi rolls and imitation meat barbecues, noodles. And then she looks at my mother, who is the kind of person that has some,、um, how do you say, backup Tupperware in her bag, and says, "But you must only eat here." And then so we start eating, and it's so good. It is delicious. It's even better than the food court. And once we've eaten our fill, the members of the holy house. Start surrounding my parents, and the leader's like, everyone in the holy house must contribute or volunteer. So my dad reaches into his pocket and pulls out his wallet, which we have only seen him do once or twice. <laughs> and then he takes out a wad of cash and freely hands it over to these people, which we have never seen him do. And my mother's like, we better go now. They drive us back to the Waffle House, and then we drive back to our home in Roswell. And the car ride home is silent. But then my dad starts speaking in Tamil again, and he starts saying, "Munnu rende nalan jumune." 
he's actually doing calculations. He had calculated the average price of a buffet <laughs> in Atlanta, multiplied it times four, and divided it into the amount of cash he gave. And he then says, we're going back for the entire summer. So this is why my family, because of my dad's cheapness and our love for food, joined a cult. <laughs> for three and a half months. <laughs> Thank you, Daya Lakshminarayanan. Thank you, Daya's dad. Now, that story was told at the Fireside Storytelling event in San Francisco. If you get a chance... You need to go to Fireside Real Storytelling. It's sweeping the nation. Check out how you can attend. Go to FiresideStorytelling.com. It was produced by none other than our own Stephanie Fu. You've reached that time. But don't be sad. Don't be blue. The Snap Universe awaits your pleasure. Snapjudgment.org. We've got full episodes, movies, music, all of that. Put some snap in your pocket if you know what I mean. Join Snap Nation on Facebook. Talk to me. Talk to me. Tell me what you think. Call me names if you want to. Twitter. Snap's Twitter handle is SnapJudgmentORG. And Snap was produced by myself and my other family. Oh, yeah, because we are a family here at Snap. We're tight-knit. You can tell by the love and the tears. Spread some joy to my brother from another mother, the click to my clock, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Stephanie Fu is not my sister biologically. Anna Tattletail Sussman, Rita Home Cooking Daniels, Pat Masidi Miller knows best. He, the happy homebody, Will Urbina, Jamie, the black sheep, the wolf. Ask not what Renzo can Gorio for you. Ask what you can Renzo Gorio. And Lindsay Lee Keel, she should not be blamed. You know when the party's over, when you're cleaning up the dishes, putting the food away, and somebody knocks on the door wondering where the party is? <laughs> no worries. That's just a corporation for public broadcasting. Send them all next door to the neighbor's house. Many thanks to the CPB. You speaks why? Because the next generation can speak for itself. Youthspeaks.org. And putting the public in public radio because that's where the public belongs. PRX, the public radio exchange, PRX.org. <laughs> While you know this is not the news, this ain't the news. In fact, you could get real, real old. One day, gather all your children, grandchildren in front of a roaring fire and you could tell them that there'd been some mistake, that a joke had gotten out of hand and that you were really not related to any of these people and if they wanted to meet the real Mr. Jeffries they should go to the senior center next Tuesday and ask for a guy named Bob yes, you could do all that and still not be as far away from the news as this is but this is NPR.